Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. Welcome to this conversation uh, about what happened in development this week. What was the news? I'm joined by uh, my colleague, Anna Goel, who is the managing editor at DevX, and by my friend, Nasser Ismail, who probably some of you know from her many stints around the global development sector. Nasser was the country director for CARE in Kenya and Somalia. She was the country director for Oxfam in Somalia. Started her career really at the early days of the MCC. So great to have you here, Nasser, to have this conversation uh, as well. And really, we just want to talk about the news this week. And it was a busy news week. Uh, I'm here in rainy Washington, D.C., where we are gearing up for the White House Correspondence Center. And that is like all the news and all the rage in this town. But I got to say, this week in global development has been busy, uh, including a big story we just put out today from the great Colin Lynch, all about the IOM race, the, the race to be the next head of the International Organization of Migration. We'll get into that in a minute, but I want to just welcome Nasser and Anna. Nice to be with you both. Nice to be here. Great to be here, Raj. Thanks so much for um, setting this up. And Anne, really great to meet you virtually. Nice to meet you, too. So maybe we can start, you know, just thinking about your expertise, Nasser, particularly on the humanitarian side of things, with the story we published this week about the humanitarian development nexus. I mean, I feel like I've heard that term for so many years, and we did a story that tried to say, you know, does it even exist? Is it working? You know, what's the late? And I guess the bottom line is the, the piece sort of says, look, this is, this is failing. It's been failing for a long time. We need to do something differently. Uh, I'd love to just get your take, Nasser, and then hear from you, Anna, a little bit more about the story tip. Yeah, no, I mean, this has been a long, long issue. I think I would say it's longer than localization. And uh, on a serious note, Raj, um, I mean, this is one of those things, if people remember maybe in the early years of Obama when he was trying to figure out how do you connect sort of the 3Ds, the, where a country has diplomatic uh, interest, where there's foreign presence, where you also have development interests and you have opportunities to invest in a country's um, investment uh, potential and future, but then also where you have disasters and humanitarian and conflict that erupt. I mean, there are so many things that happen to the average citizen around the world, and they experience all of it. And so I think programs um, from a design perspective, countries, donors, they've been battling with this idea of how do you bring peace building efforts to humanitarian efforts and then marry all of that with development, uh, development initiatives and efforts. The donors are themselves disorganized around this framework. But I always say from the 17 years of this work, seeing it in Somalia from a humanitarian perspective, seeing it in Mongolia from a development perspective, and then, of course, you hear and you see all the countries that go through the spectrum of conflict and, 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 and um, you know, coming out of it in terms of stabilization. You look at it from the victim or the person's perspective. They feel all of it. 
You've got climate change, people are feeling it. You've got a lack of investment in the productive development sectors, health, education, economic livelihoods, people are feeling it. And so I think the designer framework has failed the people because you cannot be protected from a country that is either lacking in its development efforts, lacking its ability to keep peace and, and keep security and safety at heart, but also those that cannot um, secure their own communities from outside yeah. ports. So I think we need a huge reshifting and a huge, uh, it's, it's a new day to rethink this development. Uh, yeah, and ma- maybe it was just, it was the wrong idea, the nexus, right? It sounds great. In theory, we're going we're gonna to mm. solve the immediate humanitarian crisis. And at the same time, we're going to be thinking about the future and investing in resilience. But then in the end, the that are funding this work are different. And even the professionals doing it, you know, people who think of themselves as humanitarians, they've got a different attitude about their work, a different perspective and experience than people who think of themselves doing long-term development. And the agencies are different. The UN agencies that dominate the humanitarian sector are different mm-hmm. from the bilaterals doing long-term development. We get a little bit of that into that in the piece. And I'm just curious if you have any reactions uh, to, to this big story. Sure. Yeah. I thought it was pretty notable that this was discussed in, back in 2016 at the UN World Humanitarian Summit. So it's been seven years, which is a pretty long time. And the majority of people that our reporter, uh, Teresa Welsh, spoke to just blatantly said that this has so far failed, really, for a number of reasons. Uh, risk tolerance, uh, certainly funding. There's uh, a limited amount of funding to go around. So everyone uh, wants a piece of it. Um, I guess the other notable thing was there was a little bit of hope at the end of the article. There were two Oxfam projects that were mentioned in Chad and Central African, Central African Republic. And the key was, and this was, I think more to your point, Nasra, that uh, there was flexible trust funds in terms of the funding. And that really allowed for more, risk-taking and innovation. So I think it kind of came down a lot to donors being less rigid. Um, You know, and there was a lot of talk, of course, that you can walk and chew gum at the same time. And it makes perfect sense to to focus on addressing a crisis, but then you can also address the prevention aspect. But the overall tone of the article was not very encouraging, to be honest. (laughs) And and you know what, Anna, like if you think about this issue of donor flexibility, in many ways, it's the same issue when it comes to localization, right? It's about donors Absolutely. giving up some control, saying they're going to partner with others. They're going to let other people take the lead and make some decisions. And you know, we had another piece this week, you know, Samantha Power was at a hearing and, and said, look, this is going to be really hard to do, this localization thing. It's going to be very <laughs> tough. Um, now, sorry, you've got a lot of experience dealing with these issues and you come at it from the philanthropy side too. You were co-impact. Uh, yeah. For a while, I guess. What, what's your take on the connection here, humanitarian nexus with localization, and overall, like where we are on this localization agenda? I think Raj is all. It's all interconnected. I mean, I wish you know all of us could sort of arrive at this not from our skills perspective, not from our donor hat, but really from a perspective of this is happening to people at the same time. And so, flexibility is by far the least amount of you know uh, approach and mental model and thinking we should have. I've been following localization for so long, I sometimes dream about it. Like, it's so sad. Um, But I've worked (laughs) in government, right? So I've worked in the Millennium Challenge Corporation, a U.S. government agency that was really brought on to tackle big development um, challenges around the world. 
And and USAID was always the bigger, you know, sister agency, we used to call it. It's been around for more than 50 years. When I joined MCC, it was only two years old. And so I think the localization debate has come to hit USAID in an interesting way. And I've been very humbled, actually. And I think even Samantha has been humbled by just how difficult meeting that 25, 30% target is. It's not really just a target around money. It's a tar- it's a It's a challenge that I think her uh, time, Mark Green's time, they've felt the level of transformation that has to happen for that outcome to become reality. You've got to look at your staffing. You've got to look at the countries and the embassies and where power is shared within um, the agency. You've got to look at how resource management and particularly procurement, the, the ginormous you know, elephant in the room within the uh, Ronald Reagan building is the procurement bureaucracy that really stifles innovation and stifles you know, meeting certain good outcomes like 25% support to local civil society not be achievable. And so I thought her response to um, some of the beatings that she took was both humbling in that just getting to see seven to 10%, which is what they've done, is both remarkable, but also lets her know this is really difficult and it requires so much cultural, strategic, structural change. So I don't, you know, I wasn't expecting a a big positive story, but I think the way it was covered was, you know, healthy and and fantastic and we're going to follow along. It's one of the reasons why I'm on, you know, I'm a member of DevEx is to see that trend over a long period of time or not just interested in localization in the last three years it's going to be ongoing for the next 10. hi i'm kate warren executive editor at devx if you are listening to this podcast you're likely working to achieve the sustainable development goals but are you subscribed to devx newswire global development can be a fast-moving complex sector Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevX Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system, all in a fun to read free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevX Newswire and visit devx.com slash newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. Go ahead, Anna. Oh, no, I was going to say, you know, I think it was interesting that at least there has been some progress. I mean, granted, we're pretty far away from the 25 percent by by 2025 goal, but going from 7% to, I believe it was 10.5% isn't in and of itself, but then you'd really have to delve into what does that mean? Uh, That's something we've been talking about for a long time. Are we just looking at international implementers by a different name? Um, And, you know, what exactly defines localization? And that seems to be um, you know, Nazar, I don't know if you have some thoughts, but that just seems to be so all over the place for me. And, and that gets to the core of, of one of the problems here. How do we really define localization and define devolving power to local mm. organizations? Yeah, no. So that continues to be, again, another huge uh, debacle and dilemma. And um, I think I'm becoming a little radicalized. I'm, I'm the youngest of a family of 10 and I've always been a peace builder. But now after like six years of like being with international NGOs, being with agencies across the you know donor spectrum, public, you know, with MCC, then going to the field and working for Oxfam and Care, then coming into philanthropy, which is where I am, and seeing how private investments look at this, the definition battle is quite frankly, in my opinion, as of late, is a gas. It's gaslighting. 
the the fact that we don't think that there's a definition for who a local actor is for a space where they can own their own agency and self-determining you know um, factors that we know when you go to a country in Ghana, for example, that local actors, local civil society, local organizations, they're registered, they're legal, they're representing the community. But that is the least of our problem. But it's become uh, a charade in terms of that being a barrier. I think there are bigger barriers to localization. Definition is not one. Uh, most folks have been using de the, de the defining of this term or this approach or what we're calling for, which is ultimately change, as, as gaslighting because local local actors know who's local anyone you know what's amazing asking about that is like insane. It, may, it drives me insane raj you, you know what's amazing that's right is i talked to a lot of the, the international ngo ceos yeah. who would lose out if the definition of what counts as local doesn't include them right if it doesn't include the cares the oxfams the saves the crs's and they are for it they say we are not local even our our quote-unquote local offices are not local right. we're part of a big international ngo and I've even mentioned this when I was traveling in Sierra Leone recently to an international NGO uh, staff staff uh, member. And I said, hey, do you consider yourselves local or international? I said, well, we're definitely not local, right? And this mm -hmm. is somebody from Sierra Leone in their own office there. But they just said, look, the reality is we know what local is and it's not the international NGOs. And it's crazy that the international NGOs are arguing against their own financial self-interest because they care so much about seeing this shift happen. Yeah. And at the same time, chances are the only way to hit the goal, to hit these targets, is really to say that, you know, care in Kenya and save the children in South Africa or wherever, that these are local. Um, that if you define it that way, then, then you can get to 25%, you know, sooner and in a more realistic way. I do think the people oh, at USAID, sure. the people sure. at USAID are, you know, that I talk to, I think they're legitimately, their heart is in this. You know, they, they get it. They want this to work. They want this to be a success. I just think the biggest maybe mistake that all of us in the development community to an extent are making is focusing on localization as though it's the goal when actually the goal is, you know, more effective development or just development. Right. And, and if you're, if you care about effective development, then of course you say, well, the, the way to get there is through localization. I mean, you can't impose a, a project from a distance and expect it to work. You need local people in their own community to design figure out what the problems are, figure out how to solve it, give them the authority to do it. But as is typical in our space, we kind of come back to these very technocratic solutions, right, that we kind of control. And we're sort of in control of localization, in defining it, in the systems, the procurement. So it does feel like, um, you know, this, this story is just one of many. We've been covering this story for a long time, but it does feel like we're starting to evolve. Maybe the narrative is shifting a little bit. I think so too, and 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 I think to Anna's point, like what what that shift that happened, we shouldn't ignore the seven percent to ten and a half percent. Like I I was I wrote that down, and I just said, you know what, I want to hopefully DevX follows the story, but we want to know what that shift is to get you know to ten and a half because clearly it's it's progress I think, and it's made USAID say okay, we're not at. 2%, which was one of the um, percentages that used to be coded before, um, before this, uh, well, before administrator uh, powers time. But I think, you know, that needs to be covered. I was just, again, the other thing that I'm also looking at for USAID is, you know, the last five years, the fiscal budget has just been going up enormously. And I think administrative uh, administrator powers is right. They need to put investment into the areas where, as she put it, and I really loved it, where there are democratic openings. 
to me, if that is your outcome, if that's the big goal, there's no way you can write that story if it's successful without local civil society. And the infrastructure to support it and resourcing is one of them. And so I think we've got to connect these bigger goals and say, how does localization become the fuel to all the challenges she made and all the challenges that we're seeing? Yeah, she, she was speaking at, um, at a conference, a Global Inclusive Growth Summit, where DevX was a media partner. And she made this really interesting point that, you know, we often focus on the places where things are going wrong. And we should be looking at the, the bright spots, like places where things are going well in terms of democratization and rights and then try to use all the tools we have to support those situations to get better and better, right? So it's a really, really interesting way to frame things. I, I want to shift because I know we, have, we don't have that much time. I want to shift to this amazing story that uh, we just published today from Colin Lynch about the race to be the next head of the International Organization for Migration, IOM. You know, it's a big UN agency. It's one of the UN agencies that actually has an election um, among member states, you know, they don't all work that way. Some are appointments from the secretary general, but in this case, it's an election. It was a traditional U.S. role, right? There's this, there's a lot of tradition at the U.N., as people listening to this probably well know. And one of the traditions is which country gets to have a candidate run an agency. And uh, the, the United States, for, for many, many years, we had the IOM seat. And then Donald Trump came in and put put forward a candidate that, that just nobody could support. And we lost the race to Antonio Vitorino in 2018, who's a Portuguese friend of uh, the Secretary General, and he's been in the seat for a few years now. And now there is this like, incredible race to replace him. And maybe, Anna, you can take it from there and tell us a little bit more about what, what's going on in this race to, to run the IOM. Sure. Yeah, this is, this is really turning out to be such a heated and almost – personal in a lot of ways, uh, race between these two. Um, Amy Pope was uh, Antonio's number two. So she's effectively, she's going against her boss. Um, and, you know, it seems like she's unleashing things and uh, that she thought of earlier, but maybe didn't say as the number two. And she's really made age a factor in this election. Um, she is about, I believe, 49 and he is 66. Um, she's also criticized his reported lack of, of travel, which is unusual if you're an agency that's looking out for nearly 300 million um, migrants and, and refugees. But this is something he has refuted. So, you know, and he's also come back that that, you know, Amy Pope seemed perfectly fine with his vision and with his fundraising uh, when he you know, while she worked under him. But I think the more interesting point is this is kind of shaping up to be a bit of a proxy battle um, between the U.S. and EU. It's like a yeah. proxy battle. You're absolutely right. And and it is an interesting, you know, the, the U.N., including a lot of very small agencies that we rarely report on that most people don't even know exist, have become more of a battleground, right? Like the, the Chinese government has made a real play in prior years to have, have some of their people or some of their allies people in some of those seats. The U.S. government has come back now and is pushing. So we're getting more of a, a real battle for these roles that traditionally were more like backroom deals. And now, I mean, what's amazing to me is this is a very public campaign. I, I don't know, Nasser, if you have a take. Incredibly I mean, this. public. 
Raj, I've, I've got popcorn and I'm just eating this up <laughs> because I've never, uh, you know, you're right with, with these kinds of decisions. They've been more pu- private, more discreet. You know, maybe we just used to get announcements of who's been, um, who's got it, who, who's, who's the favorite and then who gets it. I mean, a little bit like um, the former WFP uh, director who just um, finished his term and, and uh, Nancy who picked it up, I think. Uh, but anyway, we, we didn't see the sausage being, being made. And some of the, I, I, I don't know who Colin is, but thank you so much for writing it the way you did. The quotes were fabulous. I do not remember in my lifetime seeing, you know, some of this bashing that's happening. But I think it just shows how, um, you know, these political uh, decisions are, are taking place. And the fact that Africa could potentially sway, that's very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm following that along. I think to me, though, the, the thing that's very serious is the mandate of this institution since COVID. Uh, you know, handling nearly 2.3% of the global population that's moving either as refugees or as migrants. I mean, this is a serious mandated uh, institution, and um, we hope it gets funded. U.S. is one of its biggest, if not the largest funder. But gosh, I, I'm, I'm loving Amy Pope's social media and the campaign. <laughs> I never thought, never thought this would be, you know, this public. It really is. And, it, you know, one of my takeaways, you're right, the, the mandate is huge. The name is big. International Organization yeah. for Migration at a time in human history with the climate and with the number of conflicts around the world where migration is like maybe the biggest story of our era. Right. People are on the move. And potentially, you know, I, I interviewed Guy Vince, the author of Nomad Century for my book club podcast recently. You know, potentially hundreds of millions of people are going to be on the move. Like what we're seeing now may just be the tip of the iceberg, given how the climate is shifting. And yet IOM in a lot of ways, like the WHO has a big name. It has a big mandate and it has a tiny budget, right? In the end, a $3 billion budget is really small. It's grown a lot under Antonio yeah. Viterino from two to 3 billion, but it's, it's still pretty small. If you think about what they're aiming to do and Amy Pope is saying, look, we need a bigger vision. We need to have more of a strategy here. Um, not just putting out fires, not just apparently 97% of the budget is directed to, by donors for donor projects, but, you know, have a, have a larger vision. It's similar in some ways to the challenges of the WHO, I find, which I think has about a $4 billion budget and is meant to serve, you know, all of humanity in terms of global health. So yeah. uh, a really fascinating story, really fascinating race. Anything else from you on this one, Anna? Yeah, you know, I think... Um... Nazar, you mentioned this, but here is a contest where Africa has a lot of sway um, and influence uh, because they hold about, in terms of member states, around 50 out of the 175. And you look at Europe, they've got about 25. So this is really going to give Amy Pope an edge. There's been the whole backstory is in column story, but essentially there was a Sudanese national that didn't get a top job and that left some some bitterness among members of the African Union. So I think in that sense, uh, this is going to be a real battle. And I think that the fact that Africa has so much influence is unique in it. Very much so. Very much so. Especially, you know, like you said, given that they remember there's been a, a broken promise. Um, one other thing, and, and I don't know, that makes me um, uh, think about, again, just how hard Amy is pushing for this is, I wonder, is she the, is she the first woman to, to hold this post or, or has IOM had other women hold this post? I mean, she's, she's playing the inclusivity card. She's playing the young, fresh, you know, new ideas. And, and she's squarely got um, uh, the, the incumbents in terms of, you know, your old news, your status quo, I'm, I'm bringing in the heat. So my gosh, I, again, I'm not sure if she'll be um, the only uh, woman in this post, but I, I hope to find that out. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but I think she might be as I think back to the recent 
heads of IOM. I can't think of somebody who was in the role who was a woman off the top of my head. I can't either. Yeah. Yeah. So she may be, but that's something worth checking. And and it certainly would matter if you think about some of these agencies that's been around, what, 70 years now or something, and that they haven't had a a woman. Right. Okay. Yeah. If that's true, it's incredible. So that's something we'll double check, though. Um, There was a story we did this week I'd just like to mention as we kind of wrap up here, um, because I think it, it as maybe a small piece of a larger story that, that we're all going to be talking about. And that's around the environment for international development for NGOs in India. And it was kind of a, I feel like it's the tip of the iceberg, right? There was a story that we did about how hard it is for Indian NGOs to operate. And, you know, essentially the government is really cracking down. They're auditing NGOs. They're um, in some cases telling them to stop fundraising in the country because they say, look, the government has programs in these areas, so why are you fundraising for Indian rupees for, for citizens to donate when, when we've got our own programs, right? And so we did a really interesting piece, I think, talking to a number of NGOs about what it's like to operate there. I, I've spoken to some myself recently, and the sense I get is, look, if you want to achieve the SDGs, India is right at the center, just given the number of people in India. And if you look across the SDGs, in almost every case, the biggest gap to the goal is going to be in India. And of course, Nigeria maybe is a, is a close number two, or in some cases, a number one. And, you know, you, you think about how hard it is to operate there. And essentially, NGOs are having to find new ways to work together to be a little under the radar, to figure out how to partner with local government, if not the federal government, to understand what will allow them to not run afoul of the federal government, to figure out how to form form collaboratives and work in a group instead of putting one NGO out front. I mean, that was a really fascinating story, I think, that we're all going to be talking about for a while. Especially given that Modi will not be out of power anytime soon. It's been almost 10 years, and this has been building up for a decade. And there's a long history of this, but obviously it's been ramped up under under his his tenure. Absolutely. Maybe maybe Go one ahead, last maybe one last story because we'll wrap up here in just a minute. Um, and I'd love to to hear you think about this, Nasser, having worked at some big NGOs. Uh, you know, it's all about branding, right? And I, we we did a story this week. Our, our reporter Will Worley went in to sit down with Andrew Mitchell, who's the Minister for International Development um, in the UK, well known in our community as the former Secretary of State for Development back when it was its own agency in the British government. Uh, and he, he put forward some big news. Uh, he said, look, we're going to rebrand. And we used to be UK aid, and they had that brand with the British flag, and, and now it's going to be UK international development. And he said something to me that I find absolutely fascinating, which is you know, in the, kind of in a similar way, Samantha Power has her goal around 30% or 25% of, of aid going to local actors. Well, he's got a goal now of getting 70% of the British public to support international assistance. Uh, and that's a really fascinating goal. And they're, tar- they're, they're measuring it with public polling. He wants to build the case inside the UK for AIDS. So I- I'm just curious what you think about this issue of that brand change. What do you think of the brand, Nasser, of UK international development? I mean, they, they need it. But, you know, as soon as I saw that figure, I- honestly, and, and you know, uh, practicing Muslim here, I said, inshallah. I mean, that is such a big <laughs> number. <laughs> 
I, 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 I was at Oxford a couple years ago. There's this two-year project where um, we've got a professor there, um, Andrew, who's looking at the, you know, the long century of international NGOs, and particularly the UK NGOs and, and, and the, domestic, the domestic criticism they face. So I think in terms of where to address the issue of, of fixing the nature and legitimacy of civil society international NGOs in the UK, he's, he's picked the right area to intervene. Um, but, but man, 50 to 70 percent is, is a lot. I think he'd have to go through, obviously, uh, that a rebranding that just looks at both their legitimacy inside the country, but also the funding that needs to, you know, to go to support them. A lot of the UK NGOs have taken, like a lot of the other NGOs around the world, a big hit financially since the restructuring, since the uh, COVID pandemic started. So, you know, I, I'll be watching to see if we can get to 10, 15 percent, but 70, um, again, I, I will stay around. I will stick around <laughs> and see what happens. But that's, uh, again, that's, that's, it's interesting that um, Andrew would, would start with that. Anna, what do you think about this whole story? Well, I think 50% is already pretty impressive, (laughs) to say, based (laughs) on all the problems they've had. Um, I mean, I think it'll be interesting, just like Nazar said, to to wait and see whether this will be a simple rebranding exercise or something deeper. Um, You know, the big talk was when there was the the decision to fold the DFID, the Department for International Development, into FCDO. That was very controversial. Andrew Mitchell himself was very much against it. But, um, yeah, I think the question is, are we resurrecting DFID in a way? And he has said that that's not the case, that you're making the most of the merger. But I think what I'll be watching out for is, does this mean a revival of DFID within FCDO? Mm-hmm. So there's my my acronym sentence for for the week. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And just to say, uh, remember, I mean, the the, the surge, the, uh, maybe it's not, it wasn't a surge, I mean, the hemorrhage of uh, long-term, you know, um, UK early DFID staff who've been there for decades left as soon as the transition happened a couple of years ago. And so I think I think that inside house talking of just, you know, talking to uh, British community and, and British citizens about what's going on, I love that that's where he's starting from. But again, let's see how long it takes him to bring that, um, uh, I guess, war of the hearts or, or battle of the hearts back. I was also just struck in terms of language that, you know, we're still stuck as a as a community just between these same words, aid or international development. <laughs> I mean, that's it. We still don't have, I feel like we're still missing the language to talk about the future where we want to go. And here we, we began this discussion about the nexus between aid and development. And, and the UK in trying to make the case is still kind of stuck between these two, in a way, bad options for how we describe the world we're trying to create. So, Anyway, a fascinating story that we will cover and uh, continue to follow. And it's just been awesome to, to spend a little time with, with both of you. Thank you so much, Nasser Ismail, Anna Goel, and everybody who's been listening along. Thank, Thank you, you Rash. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com slash membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.